Well, welcome to Christ the King this morning. We are in the midst of a sermon series on the broad subject of worship. Now, that's a, that's a topic that really encompasses uh, the entirety of our lives. There's not a minute or a moment that we should not be thought of under that heading of worship. We are to present our entire lives as an offering of worship. However, there's a more narrow uh, that word worship has a more narrow definition. That's really what we've been considering this morning. Worship is what we do here gathered on a Sunday morning. That's what we're going to consider this third and final um, morning of this sermon series. We've thought about the question of why we worship. We worship because we're made to worship. We're, we are worshipers. Who do we worship? We worship God, our Creator, His Son, our Redeemer. Now, this Sunday, I want to consider with you the question of how it is that we worship. And I think you think about those previous answers to those previous questions. They're somewhat simple, and I think the same thing is true for this answer as well. How it is that we are to worship. How do we worship? We are to worship with our whole selves. Our whole selves. Turn with me to Psalm 100. It's printed in your service leaflet. You'll find some sermon notes in, uh, I think, the back, the last page of your service leaflet. The 100th Psalm is one of the most well-known, most beloved Psalms. It's probably rivaled only by the 23rd Psalm. You know that the Lord is my shepherd. Well, this one ranks just under that one as one of the one of the all-time favorites. It's probably been transcribed and transposed into more songs than any other, save that 23rd Psalm. Uh, Isaac Watts made this psalm into a great hymn, All People Who on Earth Do Dwell. As uh, growing up in a children's church, we sang this song, calling back uh, one half of the room, would call to the other, make a joyful noise to the Lord. All ye, all ye lands. No one else has heard that apparently, but that's what we did in my children's church. And so it's been transcribed for children of, and for adults for out the church's history. It's a psalm that was probably utilized by the Old Testament people of God to welcome them into worship. It has that very appropriate setting or that, that, that probably rings a bell. You can imagine how that would be the case. And that's uh, how it was used today in the Anglican church or the Episcopal church. We use this psalm uh, in our beginning of our services. It's called the Jubilate, and this and the 95th Psalms are two psalms that begin our public services of worship. And we're going to find in this psalm that worship is a, uh, a holistic experience. Our, our Christian worship employs your, emotion, your heart and your emotions and what you feel. Christian worship employs your mind, your intellect, and what you know. Christian worship employs your body and your will and what you do. It's a wonderfully comprehensive vision of how it is we are to worship. So let's jump right in. How, let's note how this psalm begins, this psalm that's been so important in the life of the church, so influential in particular in our worship. It begins by saying, worship the Lord, or pardon me, make a joyful noise to the Lord. The first appeal of the psalm is to our hearts, to our emotions, to make a joyful noise. Now, the Christian experience, as you know, is not emotionally monochromatic. Every follower of Christ has experienced every emotion. Every emotion. The Psalms, the authors of the Psalms, express every emotion, from the highs, the heights of joy, to the 
depths of despair, and everything in between. But I think you can make a very reasonable argument that the most dominant emotion for our worship is to be joy. Archbishop Geoffrey Chaucer said at the, near the end of his life, he said this, the longer I am alive, the more convinced I am that the Christian life is one long shout for joy. Isn't that a great line? Just consider a few of the following references uh, that describe joy as an integral part of Christian worship. Uh, just a small sampling. Zephaniah chapter 3, the prophets of the Old Testament anticipated the coming of the Messiah, that he would bring, among other things, he would bring joy. So listen to what Zephaniah writes. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice. Exult with all your heart. For the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. That is one of many, one of thousands of verses in the Old Testament that have a similar anticipation. There will come a day when the Lord will intervene, and when he does, he will bring joy. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was accompanied with joy. When Mary, the mother of God, received the news, the birth announcement, she responded, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit does what? Rejoices. We mark this, of course, as we sing joy to the world. Jesus' ministry was, joy characterized Jesus' ministry. He promised joy to his followers, saying, you have sorrow now, but one day you will rejoice. He offered joy to his followers. These things I have said that you might have joy. And so it goes on and on. Jesus' ministry was characterized by joy. The first converts to the Christian faith responded with joy. An Ethiopian official was baptized and we're told that he went on his way rejoicing. A jailer was converted by the Apostle Paul and he and his whole family rejoiced. And we could go on and on and on and on. And so we note that this beloved psalm, which invites us to worship, employs our emotion and especially joy. Now I know we all go through seasons, through hard times in which joy is muted, or times when joy is a little bit more accessible. I don't know that we all, we all express joy differently. Some are emotive, some are more quiet. But I believe that Christian worship should be, for most of the time, a joyful occasion. Now, let's think of how we can apply this. I, I know that part of my responsibility, and really the responsibility of anyone who is in public leadership, is to set the appropriate tone. It's hard for anyone else to be joyful if there's not a tone of joy coming from, coming from the front. But I don't want to let anyone off the hook quite so easily. I think joy is a collective responsibility. So, by way of illustration, uh, a quick little anecdote from my family. Little Susie is at age three and a half. And at around that age, we ensure that every, or not we, I ensure that every child eats their dinner in a timely fashion. And that moment occurs at age 3.5. 
And so there's repercussions if one doesn't eat their dinner in a timely fashion and eat it completely. And it was a, quite a shock to little Susie's constitution as she didn't eat her meal and she had the repercussions of not doing so. But to little Susie's credit, about three months ago, she met me at the door. And she said to me as I came, first thing she said to me when I came in the door, she said, Dad, today I'm going to eat my dinner. 50% of the time, that is how Susie Glade greets me as I come into the door. Dad, I'm, today I'm going to eat my dinner. Now, that's not a foolproof remedy. Sometimes her enthusiasm is quelled by broccoli or by some <laughs> indistinguishable soup. But I'll tell you, there's a marked improvement. And Susie, for most of the part, most time, she eats her dinner. What if you and I, what if we collectively came into worship? And like the psalm says, today I will make a joyful noise to the Lord. I imagine there will be, that's not a foolproof solution, there will be some days when your enthusiasm will be quelled. But I bet if you said that to yourself quietly or aloud, I will make a joyful noise to the Lord, I bet we would experience joy and express joy in abundance, don't you think? Just consider with me that Christian worship captures and employs your emotions and the preeminent emotion is one of joy. We move from the heart and the emotions to the mind and to the intellect. Where does this joy come from? Is it simply uh, emotionalism that springs out of nowhere? No. It comes from what we know. So from the heart and the feelings to the mind and the intellect. Know this, verse 3. Know this, that the Lord, he is God. You see how we transition? Now we're up here. Know this. That may sound a little circular. Know that the Lord is God, like you're using the same word to define itself. Know that six is really a half dozen. That's not the case. Whenever you see this word Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized, the authors are trying or are translating the, the proper name of God. This was given back in the Old Testament. Moses encountered God in a burning bush and revealed himself as Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. We actually have no idea how that's pronounced, could be Jehovah, but the translators are capturing that word, that, that proper noun, that, that specific name, and saying, know that that God, Yahweh, he, he is God. That's not the only way Jesus, God has revealed himself. He reveals himself as God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For us, he reveals himself, most importantly, as the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What this passage is saying, know that it's this God, this Lord, that is revealed here. He is God. Like saying, know that Elizabeth, that particular person, she is queen, right? It's a particular person that inhabits a particular role. I want to think with you of how this particularity, know this, that Yahweh, he is God, informs our worship, especially our singing. Did you see that last verse of verse 2, the last uh, phrase of verse 2, come into his presence with singing? There's more to worship than singing, but singing is important. 
Because our worship, especially our sung worship, is addressed to a particular person, there should be some robustness to what we sing. Uh, my children listen to pop music, and so I listen to pop music more than I would like, and the, I've noted that most pop music, most love songs, don't really sing to a, a person, they sing about love, right? So love is great, and love is good, and love hurts, and love, it's not really addressed to an individual, right? It's love songs about love, which is fine, not my particular taste, but whatever, Christian worship is not like pop music in that regard, in other regards as well, but certainly in that regard. We do not sing songs to God in general. We sing songs to God in particular. In other words, so back to the dinner table, we say our blessing God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. That's a fine song. But a better song is praise my soul, the king of heaven. For his grace and for his favor. Praise him for his enduring faithfulness. Praise him for all these things that we know to be true about him, and him in particular because we see it and know it here. I'm not suggesting that every hymn we sing needs to be a theological treatise. But do you see, because we're not talking to an idea, we're talking to a person. Know that Yahweh... He's God. Our passage goes on and tells us a few things that we are to know about God. Number one, that he is, in fact, great, that he is our creator. So Psalm 100 says, verse 2, know that the Lord, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us. Further, know that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Know that he is our great creator. Know that he is your tender shepherd. Reflect with me of how that these two things that we know about God could inform our worship, especially could inform our singing, come to him presence singing. Because God is a great God, our music should be correspondingly great. By great, I do not mean high quality. I hope that goes without saying. But I mean great as in, well, well just imagine. Imagine an opening hymn with organ and timpani and brass and trombones and a whole orchestra singing one of these great hymns of the faith. A great overwhelming sound. Why? Because God is a great God. But that's not all. I took a piano for a few years as a child, so not all of worship should be marked with that double F, forte, forte. It's, that is appropriate sometimes because he is a great God, but there, is, there should be a little pianissimo behind our worship as well on occasions. Why? Because he's not just a great God, he is our God. He is the sheep. He is a shepherd and we are the sheep and he cares for you and me with all the attention and all the care that a shepherd has uh, for his sheep. Therefore, imagine a single violin. Imagine a, a guitar, fingers plucking a guitar. Imagine lingering in silence over a note as we reflect that God is tender. He's near to you like a shepherd. Heart and the emotions, the mind and the intellect, know this, the Lord is God. And finally, we move to the body, body and the will. Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Come into his courts with praise. 
Now, as important as emotions are, and they are important, uh, they are not reliable. And I think everyone, anyone in a relationship that has endured has at some point in time ignored their emotions and just said, I'm going to do the right thing regardless of what I really feel like doing. Look, if worship, our worship depended upon feeling joyful, uh, it'd be a very small church. Sometimes you just have to do what is said here, enter his gates, go into his courts, pick yourself up from point A and move it into point B. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who would attest that when you do that, when you actually employ the will, when you actually tell yourself, all right, we're just going to go do that thing that we're supposed to do, emotions have a funny way of catching up. Have you noticed this? You can put this hypothesis to a test. The next time you need to seek forgiveness from God or maybe even from somebody else, but you just are not feeling particularly contrite, just try kneeling. And I, I would guess that the you'll feel contrite soon enough because the posture of repentance somehow elicits the emotion of contrition. I think our Anglican worship recognizes this. We stand when we confess our faith. We kneel or we would kneel to confess our sins. We come to the, to the kneelers open-handed to receive from him that communion. Christian worship employs the body and the will. Some raise their hands in an expression of joy. Some open their hands to receive from the Lord. Why do we do this? Why do we employ our body in worship? Because Christian worship engages not just the heart and our emotions, not just our mind and our intellect, but your body and your will as well. God created us as whole persons, Emotions, minds to think, and wills to act. You know, Jesus Christ is the redeemer of the whole person. He's not just the redeemer of your soul. He's the redeemer of your mind. He's the redeemer of your body. He's the redeemer of your emotions by his perfect life and sacrificial death. He is he is the whole person's redeemer. And so this psalm invites you and me to worship him as a whole person. So take a step towards him today. And perhaps as we're sitting here, we may think that our worship is, our experience of worship is devoid of emotion. This suggestion that Christian worship should be marked by joy just strikes you as a foreign idea. Open your heart, if not to the experience of joy, at least to the possibility of the experience of joy as you encounter him. Perhaps your worship lacks any intellectual rigor. Perhaps your worship is to God in general. Open your mind to the, the, the wonders of God who is revealed here to his grace, to his favor, to his loving kindness that he shows to you, especially as he gave to each one of us his son. Perhaps 
Our worship is just sort of lazy. Our bodies are a little bit disengaged. We slouch when we should stand. We mumble when we should speak clearly. Take a step towards him today. Enter his courts with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. I think that if you, find, if you take a step towards Jesus today, you will find that he is there and he is waiting for you. Our final verse says that he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That means he is always more ready to meet with you than we are to meet with him. If we go into his courts, we will find him there waiting for you, ready to receive you, ready to encourage you, ready to correct you. He is there in his loving kindness and his faithfulness. So let me conclude. God the Father has created every person as a whole person with hearts that feel and minds that think and wills that act. God the Son is the redeemer of every person and the whole person. And this psalm invites every person, all of creation, to worship him with our whole person. So with our bodies, let us stand. And with our minds and our hearts, joyfully affirm what we know to be true in the words of the Nicene Creed. Please rise.